Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. There's always been that idea within like mythological things that characters like the Greek gods that are iconic and then there's sort of more that idea of the shapeshifter. In many ways, I think it's easier to be a shapeshifter if you've been more of a tabula rasa, a generalist. I went to 13 bar mitzvahs, you know what I mean? Like I had lots of Jewish friends, lots of black friends, and I was always really drawn to their worlds, the exoticism. And if you get drawn toward exoticism, then like as an actor, that's exactly, you know, then it's like, hey, I'm going to go put this skin on. I'm going to go put that skin on. For sure, that's more my bent. You know, I'm not Harrison Ford. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be, like, the guy you go to for the same thing every time, and you love it every time. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm just not. That was Edward Norton. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. So back in 2002, 2003, there was a poker player named Chris Moneymaker who won the World Series of Poker. And it was around this time that ESPN started to have ESPN2 and ESPN3 and all these channels and offshoots. And on these channels, they would televise the World Series of Poker and other poker Texas Hold'em base events. I mention this because... In 2002, 2003, 2004, I was certain, absolutely certain, that I was going to become the next great professional poker player. 
I'd have friends over. We'd sit in the basement and play. I played with my sunglasses on like an asshole. And I loved the game. And and in part, I loved the game because of this film called Rounders. Uh, If you're listening, you've probably seen the movie. If you haven't, please put the podcast on hold. Go watch Rounders. I love this film so much. I loved it so much that I had to buy a second DVD of it because I wore out the first one. It was in that film that I was introduced to today's guest, uh, Edward Norton. And from there, my family was adamant about watching uh, his other work, American History X, Fight Club, Primal Fear, The People vs. Larry Flint. My dad is a huge fan of the score. He still watches it twice a year. And each role, uh, Norton was uh, mesmerizing and impressive and different. No matter where you saw him, he was never the same twice. I didn't have the vocabulary for it at this time. But there was something about Norton. He had this uncanny ability to shapeshift time and time again into anyone from any era at any point. And to use one of his words, he has a penchant for mimicry. And you can see that throughout his body of work. That chameleonic ability uh, is... uh, Is that a word? Is chameleonic a word? Did I make that up? We know it's a chameleon. Chameleonic. We're going to roll with that one. Um, His chameleonic ability is really on display in this new film in which he stars, uh, writes, directs, produces. It's really an achievement. It's called Motherless Brooklyn. It's out in theaters November 1st, and uh, here's a bit from the trailer. Okay, listen. I got something wrong with me. That's the first thing to know. I got threads in my heads. I got threads in my heads, man. I twitch and shout a lot. (laughs) Makes me look like a damn freak show. Can't you ever cut that out? I'm sorry. Touch it, Bailey. I'm sorry. But inside my head's an even bigger mess. I can't stop twisting things around. Words and sounds especially. Have to keep playing with them until they come out right. Sorry. Jeez. Forget I asked. Like I said, a damn mess. Then I started working for Frank. Frank Minna, Private Eye. Boys. Frank, frankly, frankly, Franco. He's the one who taught me how to use my head, turn it into a strength. He gave me a place in this crappy world until I screwed up. Frank! Brooklyn's just in trouble now. Ooh. Does anybody know what Frank was into on this? There's something going down, and it's big, and they were not happy about what he found. We find who did this, and we square accounts. If I figure it out, I'm gonna make him regret it. I promise you that. That's her. That's the girl that Frank was following. I think she found something. What happens to poor people in this city wasn't news yesterday, and it won't be tomorrow. Where's everybody go? Mostly just disappear. This town is run by Moses Randolph. When someone isn't seen for what they truly are, that's a very dangerous thing. Do you have the first inkling how power works? Power is knowing that you can do whatever you want and not one person can stop you. Those people are invisible. They don't exist. If you threaten his work, he will destroy you. You all alone? You got no idea. 
webbed up in this somehow, and these people aren't going to stop. You got a head just like mine, always turning things around. Some people call it a gift, but it's a brain affliction just the same. You remember what I said? She doesn't know. She doesn't know. What don't I know? For my money, and, and you know, we get into this during the podcast, uh, 25th Hour is the film of his I keep coming back to. If you haven't seen it, the movie is set on the heels of 9-11 in a dilapidated, despondent New York City. It's directed by Spike Lee, and he manages to capture a distressed and somber city through the eyes of uh, this character played by Norton, named Monty Brogan. He's a upper-class drug dealer who's been sentenced to seven years in prison. What we see in the film is really a story about a man's final hours of freedom. That's a pretty simple logline to this movie, and yet I think it is one of Spike Lee's most emotionally, intellectually, psychologically complex films. It's a film about family and regret and uh, ambition and plans that never shaped out. There's something about this movie that I keep coming back to, and that something is probably Norton. And I, and I just wanted to give context for The 25th Hour because it is a film that we talk about in this episode. It's also, uh, you know, in the interest of transparency, one of the only films we actually talk about. We did our best to try to talk about stuff that matters to him and to me, and uh, that includes uh, his sophomore film, that's called Motherless Brooklyn. It will be released in theaters around the country on November 1st. It really is a labor of love and something that took him a long damn time to finish and make and get made. So if you have the means and the time next weekend, I really do hope you go out and support this film. So without further ado, here is the one and only Edward Norton. You started writing this movie uh, in 2003. You finish it, uh, or at least half of it, by 2004. You take a five-year break, and uh, now the movie's coming out in 2019. Can I just ask you generally, how are you feeling? <laughs> you know, I, I really, I finished the movie and really sort of put it to bed in the in the spring, in about April or May. We were really finished with all the final color correction and tweak tweak tweaks of the of of it and um and around then I showed it to some friends and colleagues and people I really admire and that's the moment I was feeling the best mm -hmm. um I was content with it I was I had accepted that it was time to stop and it was getting a really good response from people I really respect and in a way <laughs> In a perfect world, that would be it. You would just sort of release it uh -huh. uh, to your family, the, the and friends. zen, the zen perfection of no. I somehow it would just somehow it would just exist in the world, and people could form their own direct relationship right. with it. Then, um, and then across the summer, I really let myself kind of decompress and travel, and it kind of faded into the this happy 
place of contentment, then you have to enter the the world of the business of films and put it out. And um, and everything about that requires meditation mm-hmm. <laughs> to to sustain your to sustain kind of the the simple feeling of contentment that you get from just getting the work done mm-hmm. and and feeling you know that you got it where you wanted it that uh because all of these the, it's literally like something out of the greeks like this harpies just start swirling around you the very loudly expressed opinions of people you maybe don't really you know have any reason to care about or respect and mm-hmm. it just it becomes high school again right you know uh and and all of that has very little to do with the act of just making the movie. It, yeah, nothing, nothing to do with none of the, none of the collaborators that you love and respect are around, and it's just um, they've moved it, on. Yeah, it's an entirely it's an entirely different um, proposition. But I find even within that, um, not not just complimenting your show or whatever. I think when the work becomes a springboard for extensions of the conversation mm-hmm. that are that the film is meant to provoke. Right. If you can find authentic conversation provoked by what the film's about, that's that's nice. And I I liked uh, that that in the world we're in that these things have risen up um, ju- exactly this kind of a show, like a kind of a pirate or gorilla world of people determined to have substantive conversations and saying we don't need the Matrix to give us permission to do it mm-hmm. is is um is a potent thing. I'm 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 very supportive of that kind of dialogue, you know? Well I I, I want to say at the top, I appreciate you coming. <laughs> because uh, many people in your position, although they want to have conversations mm-hmm. that are human, um, are reluctant to do so. And so for you to come uh, really does mean a lot. Thanks. That's no, the last I'm compliment glad. I'm going to give no, you. No, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I think um, cultural dialogue ebbs and flows. It goes through phases. And um, I think that sometimes people, we live in a world obviously where highly compress, we, we've, we've learned to compress our expressions and communications into 140 characters yeah. or... Bite-sized. Yeah, bite-sized things. Um, pictures with a caption and... Um, the reductiveness of those narratives, I think we're already starting to feel the downside of that. I think we're already starting to experience that that there's a degradation of the quality of our life experience, you know, not just not just of the quality of of the thought that's going into it, um, which is neither it's not elevating anybody really. But I think we're also realizing that um, those things are designed to addict us. Um, there's a, there's a lot in our world that's designed very conscientiously to plug us into the matrix by addicting us and using these as mechanisms to sell things to us. And I think whether that's pl- platforms that invite us to into this sort of constant dopamine hit of social affirmations right. or films, you know, that are essentially high fructose corn syrup, you know, delivered to a very passive audience and encouraging passivity, not only in their aesthetics, but actually in what they're saying, which is like other people will come in and save the world. Just lay back, mm-hmm. lay back and eat your popcorn and be a copper top, basically. And then later we'll sell you some more shit off this. And I think and hope there's still that that there's an underestimation of human beings in that and that there's a lot of people who actually still want 
um, more nourishing conversations. They want more nourishing movies. They want to be provoked. They want to be activated, you know. And um, if if I didn't think there were some people who want to do that, I'd kind of bail and go be a pilot or something. I have to say, as someone uh, who is starting to direct myself, I hope you are right because because we are in a time where uh, it seems less and less apparent that people want something else and that the system is even making something else. Um, there is something you reminded me of, which is, uh, if we can go back for a second, mm-hmm. you have this teacher, uh, Toby Ornstein, <laughs> and, you know, when you go in in, in, in high school and, and meet with her, she says, uh, she recalls of you, the first thing he asked me was, what was my objective? He had this tremendous analytical ability that most kids do not have. Hmm. Um, Where'd you find that quote from Toby? Because I, I think I remember hearing that, but I don't even remember when that was. I think it's a, a New York Times, yeah, yeah. something like that. I, I equate this to um, the kind of Gladwell 10,000 hours hmm. Beatles, you know, performing in Germany and having over like 1,200 shows in four years. You have someone who is not just uh, a, a regional, um, you know, hobbyist here. You have someone who who loves the craft and is passionate about it and knowledgeable. When you look back on her, does does that experience feel deeply formative? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, Tom York wrote this really beautiful ballad right. for the film that I don't know if you picked up on it, but when they dance in the club, when he when when he dances and Lara sort of soothes his mm-hmm. twitching, the 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 sort of slow trumpet ballad, Miles Davis. That's Wynton Marsalis's rearrangement of Tom's song. No kidding. Um, as if it's a ballad by Miles Davis in the fifties. So there. So if it if it tr- triggers kind of a wait, why do I know this? It's because it's the same song you hear Tom singing earlier. Right. In the, in the film, um, it did do that. Yeah, but I, but Tom, you know, I, I love Radiohead's music and Tom's music, um, and those guys talk about having a teacher in their prep, you know, in their prep school when they were uh, thirteen or fourteen, who basically said to them, you know, take music seriously, take music seriously, take it, you know, learn composition, learn orchestration, learn these things, and. You know, they describe that as that formative voice that said, "There, th- taking this seriously opens up like a, a richness to you." And everything they did that we look at is so contemporary. They got from someone saying, "Do the hard work to really understand what this is, if mm-hmm. you want to be, you know." And that's why they're more than pop stars, right? For me, yes. Like, have, when you have a person who, when you're a young person, speaks to you with the respect of seriousness, it makes a big impression on you. I think it makes a big impression on anybody when someone um, sets the bar high and, and says, you know, kind of says, this deserves your attention. And, uh, and certainly, Toby Ornstein, it was amazing. It was a central Maryland. She ran a dinner theater. Um, Yeah. But, but she, but an enormous number of people flowed out of that specific dramatic arts school in Maryland and went to Broadway and went to, I, I bet pound for pound she created like more s- successful professional actors than than your average like local like drama school ever did. Mm. I, I'm curious because even though you had this experience as a kid, when you go to Yale 
for college. Uh, you first major, I think, in astronomy. Then you get a degree in history. You are rowing during this time. Acting seems to be on the periphery, something you could do. Do you think you were resistant? Yeah, although the the thing that was amazing, I mean, I went to public school my whole life, and when I went to Yale, it was a real, it was like falling through a rabbit hole into a world of incredibly diverse and talented people and um, incredible opportunity. It was just, it was so rich with opportunity. There was an enormous amount of theater going on outside of, you know, the the formal uh, class structure or or selection of concentrations or anything like that. So I actually I actually did do a lot of theater there. I even took a few classes, but I was but the entire time I was doing studying everything formally that I was studying, I was doing a lot of theater. Probably two plays a year, uh, which is about as much as you could do. I I was doing them with. There was a lot of self-produced. Uh, st- there was just tons of theater there, and I was, and I, I remember feeling, it's partly because of my family, those things, but I, I just knew that there was a, there was an act, there was an opportunity to study with people, there at that time. I just knew, even when I was nineteen, I was never going to get again. And to me, not that it was a mature sense, but I sort of had an awareness that like, you're not going to walk out of here and be a professional actor. And so nothing you do here is going to be determinative on that. So why would I, why would I give up the mm-hmm. entirety of my academic opportunity at this place, right. doing something that probably is a later decision anyway? You know what I mean? How did you figure that out? Um, I think it was honestly, it was simply some of it was like one of those things where you look around and I've never liked being boxed into like limiting choices. And I looked around and was like, well, I can still do that. It's a thing I like doing. I can still do it. Why would I, if I can do a lot of it, why wouldn't I also study history? You know what I mean? Like, why? why? It was sort of like, I can have both. The history department at Yale mm-hmm. in the late 80s was literally like, it was the it was a roster of people writing some of the most definitive books in all the world on the given subjects. It was, it, it was just one of those things where it was like, it was like an all, it was the Yankees lineup. Right. Of really, really significant thinkers and writers, which Yankees in their fields? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Which Yankees? Um, <laughs> the Jeter era Yankees. Okay. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, there was a, an allure to the. To the, there was a star status to the people in the history department at that time, and my dad is in. You know, I I inherited an interest in a lot of things from my father, mm-hmm. and I just you know. It made an impression on him. It's, it is one of those things like you realize your father's flipping through the blue book. It keeps going, whoa, like, you yeah. know, this guy teaches there. Whoa, she teaches there. Wow, wow, this is going to be so great. And you start going, whoa, what, who are these people that are impressing my dad? You know, yeah. so some of it's like that. I'm curious for you and your father, when school ends and you go to New York, I, I'm curious, what did your father think of that decision? Um, he thought it was great. Both my my parents are were real aficionados of the arts. Like mm-hmm. they're the kind of people who, who keep all of us in business. Literally, they love the theater, love movies, love classical music, love chat. I mean, they, they pay for love the Beatles. Rates, like yeah. you know, the vi- my mom's vinyl collection of the Beatles and John Lennon solo records and yeah. everything was like my whole life. They loved musicals. They loved movies. They, I mean. 
the kind of people we need more of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there was no, um, and my mother's brother was, uh, you know, a classically trained oboe player. Her other brother was a, a painter. Um, so that we had artists in our family. Uh, there was a, a love in, of the arts. My mother taught English, but taught Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't even know, you know, when I moved to New York, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. So I was doing a lot of stuff. Um, and I think they were very much of the mind of, like, you know, go have adventures. Like, it wasn't even so much about, like, no one in my family thought anybody should make a career choice when they're 21 years old. Your friend um, Ann Biderman said, unlike a lot of people, uh, Edward could have been anything. <laughs> mm, I don't know if I think it's unlike a lot of people. I think I think lots of people could be lots of things. Um, yeah, I, I think most people have vast, diverse potential in them. You know, I, I think it's interesting that some people, I think, can't envision themselves doing any other thing. I'm always impressed by, you know, I call it sort of the Keith Richards model. It's like I'm in love with something, and it is my lifeline. It is my only vector up and out of where I am, Bruce Springsteen, mm -hmm. right? This guitar is taking me. This is my only conveyance out of where I don't want to be and into where I want to be. And a lot of times, I, I mean, I think those are people, sometimes those people do a kind of work that is, it's like the old use of the word adept, like they become an, ad, an adept, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like a, a druid. I love that. You know, of what they do. And I think sometimes that kind of depth of immersion in a thing is only comes from people who don't feel like they have a lot of options. Sometimes I, and I think um, because I've always been lucky and had exposure to a lot of things, options a lot of things, I've been. I've always been a, a more of a generalist, a da not a dabbler, but I, I've usually got a lot of. I do a lot of parallel processing, mm -hmm. um, to use a techie phrase. You, you did a long form interview uh, with Springsteen, and where I the one I interviewed him. Yeah, yeah, and and in it he talks about how all, all the sort of mythology around him, his whole career, was very carefully constructed and and put together, and and preconceived. Yeah. Is there any of that in, in your early 20s, thinking about what you wanted once you landed and decided on acting? If you're even Bruce at 25 years old, when he's sort of like has released his first two records and he'll he's very honest about it. He's like, you know, they were they were trying to tag Columbia Records was trying to make him him and about six other people. The next Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and he was always a good goal. He wasn't feeling that. Um <laughs> And he, you know, I think Born to Run is is Bruce really taking the vehicle by the wheel and going, no, I'm going where I intend to go. And I think, you know, he had he had done things that were beginning to shape a narrative before that, but that one really becomes obviously this real, it becomes a mythology, mm -hmm. like an anthemic mythology. And I think when you are writing your songs, which you are going to perform and you are going to record and then you are going to play live and it is you who is telling these stories and you're inhabiting, let's call it a permanent character, mm -hmm. A, there's an autonomy in that that's really, really different from what an actor has and B, you're, you're, you're investing in a, a permanent character. You know what I mean? Um, unless you're Bowie, who I think I think about a lot because he... He was a real shapeshifter. He was kind of an actor's rock star mm -hmm. in the sense that he was like, 
Ziggy Stardust is a character, and I'm going to do that character for a while, and then I'm going to do Aladdin Sane, and then I'm going to do The White Duke. And, that, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of incredible the, the way that he was iconic, and yet he was, he was almost I- icon- an, an iconic, like, freak. He was like, the freaks are the coolest people in the world, and I'm a freak, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my skin constantly. Constantly. That's a different sort of a thing, but I, but actors, I think, you know, are are scraping and hoping that someone says yes and and lets them work, mm-hmm. right? So it's not. Um, I, I like how you're putting "lets them work." Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that if you if you have the notion of creating a a mythology around yourself as an artist, an actor is is not the right um, branch of mm. <laughs> the arts to go into. Can I ask you? Do you think you had confidence? In those early years, I bring this up because there's one specific interaction that I had. That I had determination, but you know, you talk about ten thousand hours. Some of ten thousand hours, and I see that you, there's a great book about about children called Nurture Shock mm-hmm. that um, that talks about how this is a weird digression, but it talks about how when parents praise children, you have to be very, very careful. That there's now like reams and reams and reams of studies that show that praise oriented toward an existential comment on them or a nature. Like if you say, you're really smart, you are smart, mm-hmm. that this is a very a damaging kind of praise. Whereas if you say, you worked really hard on that, you're, I saw what you did, and that was fantastic, they, they know that they did do that thing. And so that's an, they line it up with what they actually already know from other data themselves, and they learn to trust a certain kind of praise. All the studies show that praise that says you are this, they've got like they've got like fifty other data points to cross reference with whether in fact what you're saying is true. And if it doesn't line up, they stop they they by the time they're four years old, they know not to trust mm-hmm. in a way just the single source of praise. I think that's really true for an actor too, or any artist, when you it's not that some individual moment like makes you do a thing but over time if you're interested in doing a thing and you start to try it you get a tiny you get tiny data points of like is this working am i am i doing do i do this well or is there even an indication that i should continue to try because i enjoyed it and you amass to your to your point you amass an enormous amount of data right because i started doing it when i was really young and because um even by the time I was in college, I I had a I had a sense within me that I had a certain facility for mimicking people, even you know, or for the rhythm of a joke, or for this or that. Right? It's not like I was doing like drama at that age. You know, you you a you're getting better because you're learning things from good teachers, but mm-hmm. b you're doing things, and and it's like not even your parents it's other people who you are objective and you kind of trust you're going hey they're responding to that like that and works it, and it feels good so by the time i got to new york i wanted to do it because i had a i had two sensations one is i had a pretty long history of a sense that i i i i'm maybe not bad at this and i enjoy it a lot i definitely enjoyed it a lot and i think maybe i've got a little pool of confidence based in the reason to do it. But more, I also felt by that time that I was really into films and into theater. And 
from a more from a dramaturgical almost point of view, I think what I actually knew in a core sense was that I understood how to tell stories. I just always felt that. I would write little comic books. I would make little movies with my friends. And I think that, in a weird way, I had more of a a confidence that was not not really supported by any particular history. I, I just felt like I would watch things and go, that that doesn't work. That's not good because of this. And it's so obvious. It was very obvious to me. It was like something, like a guitar being out of tune. Almost intuitive. Yeah, it, it was a, like like things being out of tune would jangle me, and I would go, but that that doesn't work for these reasons. And I felt kind of a sense of that the that the storytelling craft, and maybe that, you know, my I mean, comes from just like watching things and discussing them with my parents right. all my life. You know what I mean? My mother was really good at, she, you know, she she graded, types. yeah, and she was an English teacher. She graded people's like stories and graded their papers and great things and would talk and talk and talk about that stuff. Or she showed me Woody Allen movies when I was ten or eleven years old, and she would say, "What you know? Do you see why this guy's movies are so different? You know what I mean?" So. Maybe there was a deeper bench of things, but I I felt even in my twenties I felt like I wanna I wanna produce I wanna put things up I wanna make them I wanna um, do stuff. You know, on the heels of uh, doing a part in Fragments and Edward Albee's play and having an experience with Albee um, that I would say seems positive on paper. There's this quote here from you, and in, in some ways for your story, your life story, in some ways. Primal Fear being that early film makes a a lot of sense. You said, as an actor, I'm driven more by an authentic, I would say, an obsessive compulsive disorder fixation (laughs) on mimicry, tonality of voice, to literally imitate something until I can just disappear into it. In some ways, I see um, the part uh, Laurence Olivier and uh, uh, Ricky Jay sort of folded into one uh, strange... Uh, talent that is you. Can I ask when all that happens in the, in the mid '90s and you get that role and you do People vs. Larry Flint after? Did it make sense to you that this was happening in your life? Um, that's an interesting question. I I like the Lawrence Olivier J mashup that I've never heard. You know, um, what's this dude about that? I, you must know something about Olivier to have said that. But Olivier Olivier was a real. Um, he was the antithesis of a method actor. He always, you know, he loved a rubber nose and a a, a must. I mean, he was he was a real like um, craft mm-hmm. kind of guy. Not not not, you know, there was the famous kind of encounter between him and Dustin Hoffman on Marathon Man, where you had this kind it's of wonderful, yeah, t- this this clash of like more of a classical approach. But I think Olivier always apparently really just loved doing voices and stuff like that. And um, I think um, I think Rick, Ricky, who I was really lucky to get to know and work with a little bit, he, the idea of the thing disappearing, the thing that has a mechanism within it disappearing, was, I mean, there was nobody ever better at that than him. And he was a great showman as well. I, I definitely think... Um, it's funny. I sometimes, when I'm talking to at younger actors or whatever, you'll feel this romance. Um, there's a there's an applied, a retroactively applied romance to this very vague notion of of method acting, mm-hmm. which 
people at this point have literally, they have so polluted and bastardized and misunderstood what that even means. And it's come to, it's come to be this like broad generic reference for anyone doing work of intensity or, or gaining weight or doing anything, which actually has n almost nothing to do mm -hmm. what the actual thing meant. It's and almost always weight based. They, yeah, and they've mixed it up. With, they've mixed it up with. Um, they've mixed it up with all kinds of other things. There's this kind of um, Im implied um, qualitative uh, thing where, where it's, it's sort of somehow it's inferred that it's a there's there's it's something better to be an intuitive actor or an instinctual actor as opposed to a intellectual or a cerebral or a analytical actor as though as though the better work comes from intuition and you know improvisation and all this kind of stuff and i think it's the biggest load of shit like i think it's um it's a complete uh false assessment <clears throat> of what has actually gone into the work of many great actors who people are pointing at and saying, well, there's this very f feral or they'll put all these words on it. If you think that Daniel Day-Lewis or Robert De Niro or Joaquin Phoenix, if you think that anyone who's good or you think is good doesn't do analytical work first, doesn't do dramaturgical work, look at the piece, understand the piece, understand the style of the piece, understand the work of the director, mm -hmm. who they're going to work with, who directs the piece, understand how's the role fit within the piece, and do a whole lot of research, literally, on the thing itself before they even attempt to get inside the thing, you're out of your mind. Like That's you know, less exciting to people. <clears throat> yeah, but in a way... It's basically like a version of what Trump is doing to in the United States. It's the anti-intellectual. Oh no! No, it is. It really is. It's no, the... I know. I thought we were gonna try to avoid that. <laughs> it's just. Uh, it's just. It's. It's. It's kind of mentioned in my film that that notion when Alec Baldwin says, yeah. when his character says, um, "It's not knowledge. It's a it's action mm -hmm. and enterprise that are the engine of things." It's like this thing of sort of saying people with their with their ideas, ideas and their diligence and their Impulse. It's like that's not going to get anything done, you know. And it's like this this whole notion that I, I shoot from the hip, and that's actually a better way to do things. And it's like, it's just a total load of BS. It's a it's a rationalization of not doing the work. But everything you're saying reminds me that uh, when you're in New York, you have a teacher named Terry Schreiber, and there was a sort of uh, pluralistic approach to things that he had that is still. Even right now in 2019, I can see it in you. It seems you are taking from a whole host of influences, and then you end up with some sort of amalgamation mm -hmm. that is your perspective. Definitely, I, I, but I think like orthodoxy has not gotten the world into very good places in any dimension of life. Orthodoxy generally turns into forms of fundamentalism. You know, mm -hmm. other than in science, pretty much. But even scientists essentially practice an intrinsic, whatever's become the baseline understanding. It's really about control. Um, even even acting teachers who were orthodox, on the whole, what they're really trying to do is create a cult of dependency on themselves mm -hmm. within students. You know what I mean? They're not trying to create functional actors. They're trying to create actors who have to keep paying for their class. And I think that... Um, 
by saying, this is the way. Right. If you don't get deep inside this way, the Strasbourg, you know, method. Miser. And it's like, this is a way of just making you stay, do another 15 classes or whatever the hell they're trying to sell you. Wouldn't you say the same is true of the sort of larger Hollywood apparatus? Mm, yeah, they yeah. want you to be dependent in some way. Well, sure. That's what we, I mean, there's no question that the part of the media and entertainment business that w- would like to be more like a car business and be able to have reliable um, re- recurring revenue. Yeah. Um, they don't want the volatility of having to make a different widget mm-hmm. every 15 different widgets every year, meaning films which in their original risk that the alchemy that makes a good film, there's much more, you know, volatility uh, in I'm it. I'm mortified you just used the word widget. Yeah, but, but they, no, but they uh, they want, they you know, it's like Tesla Model S is a sexy car. They would really like to sell a whole lot of those. Um, and the movie, the entertainment complex would like its movie studios that it now owns to... Um, do a better job at creating a steady state reliable thing that goes on for years and years and years and years mm-hmm. and years and they have right they've they've built massively successful franchise factories um um in multiple genres and multiple forms and everything and by the way it's not to say that good films don't get made within that they do like some terrific films get made and i'm i'm like a big pixar fan i actually really believe they've made some like great, great, great movies in modern times. I think they have, that's an amazing instance of a place that they actually, they, they'll they do a one and two and three or four of certain. Amazingly, they're good. Mm-hmm. The, the three and the four are good, you know, but, but they also continue to make or, original films, which is, there's always the rare exception to the rule, right? And you got to give it up when you see people just making terrific, like, crafted things right so so it's not to be you have to be careful about being cynical about any like corner of the universe there's right. people doing good work and trying to break out of the thing but you're right the and it's not just it's not just certain it's not just film studios or anything like that it, it, it is like so social media and me, there's many 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 ways in which people want us to be um um, reliable consumers. Mm. In 1997 through around 2003 or four, um, the studio looked differently. The system was different. In the mid-90s? Mid-90s and then early 2000s. There's a lot of work, and we don't have time to go through all of them. But I'm curious, you right now, what are the movies in that period that stick out to you as as personally significant? Um, well... At this point, a lot of ink has been devoted to 99 as as a really great year. And it's it's indisputable. I mean, it was uh, it was notable at the time to me that a lot of people that I thought were my peers, or whatever, dropped some very generational mm-hmm. work, you know, really personal, great work. Um, it's pretty, you know. There was I, there was Fight Club, there was The Matrix, there was Election, being John Malkovich, Three Kings, Magnolia, you know. 
I mean, it it, it goes on. It goes on. There there was a lot of people doing stuff that I was just like, you you were just like kind of metaphorically on your feet like over and over like going wow like look at that movie Spike made look at PTA's new movie look at this who the hell are these guys who just made this movie The Matrix like you know like it it, it was um it was it was cool it was exciting it felt mm. it felt like uh felt like a lot of voices were being given um a mic you know and it was and and using it you know, early on in, in that time, uh, you do a film called Twenty Fifth Hour, which, for me, is is I think the the best film to come out of that decade for me personally. I'm fascinated by that film, but also your co-star uh, Philip Hoffman. Uh, you both talked about uh, in an interview a long time ago how uh, people like De Niro, Pacino, Street, people who came up in that acting. Uh, class are the reason that you guys got to do a lot of what you did that you you saw there was some lineage in that movie and, and then I guess in a more broader context what about him was special Phil yeah um, he was in a weird way like in my re- recollection of it he kind of actually popped up on my awareness earlier even than other people who were peers and friends of mine, you know, who I thought were super talented, Mark Ruffalo and Bobby Cannavale. And he's just one of those guys that really early on kind of made you flip, like go, whoa, like what, what, what? That guy's got some, some heft, yeah. you know, he's got some, he's got something that feels already a little more a little more grown up in a weird way, a little bit edgier than your average, like, mid-20-year-old or something. And there was, an, there was a period in the 90s when a lot of us were kind of working on our... Phil and his guys, they were making this great theater company, The Labyrinth Company. I was working on Signature Theater. In New York, the thing I always loved about being there is that there was a sense in the people who were in New York that they were engaged in kind of the multidimensional love of what we do, whether it was like Ethan Hawke and Josh Hamilton and John Sherman doing the Malapart Company, Phil and his guys were in Labyrinth with Signature. Liev was involved with the public theater very deeply. Mm. And it, it if there's ever a, a place and in, in a way that actors, I think, have a camaraderie, a real community of camaraderie, mutual respect. <clears throat> That's how I felt in in that time. And and the people who kind of started to have film careers but stayed with that life um, in New York, almost like the way Willem Dafoe had with the, the Worcester group, you know. Mm-hmm. You felt, I always felt especially bonded to that group, you know, of people. and And he was, you know, one of the, ones who we all like you know admired but in 2002 we did red dragon we made this sort of big hollywood movie together and then we did 25th hour and then we were both doing plays that fall i was doing burn this and i think he i think he was directing um jesus took the a train or our lady of 125th street or something like that and Mm. and i i i got to know him much better then and um 
that one year of 2002 has those, they have three different sort of facets to you. I mean, you have a studio movie, you have 25th Hour, mm. which is the best of a system, I think. And then you do theater. Uh, you have this quote that I like, which is, I didn't get into movies to be the next Burt Reynolds or Schwarzenegger. I love those guys, but that wasn't what kept me up at night. I think to some degree you aim at the creative targets. It's around this time that I feel like your career is taking all kinds of different shapes and, and you're doing all kinds of projects. What did you want for yourself at that time? What's funny, I, I don't really remember what I wanted. Or maybe what you didn't want. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I remember um, when, you're, when you hit the jackpot and you, you have the choice to work on things, you know, sometimes it's people. You just can't not work with somebody. And so, like Danny DeVito, who I think has more mojo than, like, he, he's, like, a really great artist, a great human being. Um, and when he comes and sit with Death to Smoochie, you know, and Robin Williams can do it, it's like, I'm, I'm doing this. There's no way I'm not doing this. I grew up on Taxi, you know, like, and, um, and I loved him. And I, I had never done anything like that. So it's just the pure... However this turns out, I'm not missing the experience mm -hmm. of doing this. At the same time, we were trying to get Frida made, you know what I mean? And I had written the, a screenplay of Frida. And, and there was this kind of passionate sense of let's get passion projects done, right? Um, and working with Spike was like a, as much of a... That was in the top echelon of ambitions, dreams that I had. And by the way, Phil, too, he... I think Phil and I talked about we were really excited about working with Spike, like really, really excited. It was a big, it was a very big deal to both of us because his Do the Right Thing was one of the formative experiences I ever had as a young adult. It completely changed my, it, it changed my sense of what the aspiration for what, what films could do was. It, it, it was like a, you know, it was a landmark experience and film it really, really changed a lot of our heads. Like, it, and Phil had had that experience with it too. And we were talking just about this is a good text. Like, this is a this is Spike. This is a this is a good text. This is like a play, and it's a real morality tale. And then, and then the suffusion of kind of the melancholy that was in New York post nine eleven, the the awareness that Spike was working that in. And then he and then he rehearsed it like a play, five or six weeks of nine to five rehearsal, and then a movie screening every night to talk about what you know the aesthetics were. I mean, it was it was like going Heavenly. to camp. I mean, it was like it was truly like going to it was the actor dream camp in a way. And um, and like I said, he he made the film faster than any film any of us had ever made. A twenty six, twenty seven day shoot. It went like blazes because of his rehearsal process, and I just loved it. I loved every bit of it, and I, I even remember, you know, Phil. For me, he was exactly the kind of person all my life I'd always hoped would like my work, like me. And he was he was crusty, and you had to earn the warmth from him. He he wasn't like a gregarious, mm -hmm. um, e e easy kind of thing. And that that's good, in a way, because when you when you got somewhere that you felt 
like there was a real kind of commiseration. It it was it it, it felt, felt earned. Yeah, it it was great, and I felt on Twenty Fifth Hour, I we had we had moments of working together, and in and around it, where I I I felt like a just a, a deep sense of contentment because I was like, this is these are the kind of people I got into this whole thing to do this with Phil Spike, you know, um, and and I John Killick, the producer, who really is one of the great artistic filmmaker-driven producers. If you look at the films he's produced, it's just unbelievable, the people he's worked with, Spike and Schnabel and Iniridu, and he's he's the filmmaker producer out in New York. And mm. it was just great. It was just a, like a fantasy. And, um, and then we were all doing plays and hooking up after play. You know, it was a great year. It was a great year. And in, in, I mean, in a way, what I remember more is going out of that year, I thought what I don't want to do is just keep working like I'm some suit until I have an experience that goes bad and makes me want to take a break. <clears throat> I thought, if I feel satiated, it's like this has been such a great year. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe what I should do is stop eating. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe I, instead of instead of going until I feel sick, why don't I actually go, that was that was everything I ever wanted out of being an actor. Why don't I like just take a breather, enjoy the fact that I don't work in the straight world and don't have to do mm -hmm. another gig, and so I so I just 2003 I just stopped. Um, I got Incredible. my I got my pilot's license. I spent most of the year training as a pilot and and starting to research Motherless Brooklyn. You approached it uh, in the same way that I I think all gamblers wish they approached gambling, which is yeah, exactly you early. take the chips off the table. Yeah. In reading about you and talking to a few folks uh, that we know in common, they have all described you as a deeply ambitious person. Uh, ambitious is a ambitious is a um, pretty uh, big basket of a word. With the right tone of voice, ambition can sort of be a pejorative, it can, or it can be like a positive. You know, I think motivation is. is I meant that uh, as a positive. Yeah, yeah. I think it because it, because what are you ambitious? You know, there's the what makes Sammy run. Um, I don't, do you know that book by Bud Schulberg, who wrote On the Waterfront? Yeah. His his really great novel, What Makes Sammy Run, is is basically a chronicle of, of, of a hungry ghost. You know, ambition without ambition that cannot be satiated. Basically, ambition for exactly what, frankly, my my character played by Alec Baldwin has, which is the the ambition for ceaseless achievement mm -hmm. um, that starts to outweigh. Any ambition to the ambition to care for other people, you know, ambition for power, ambition for accolades, or ambition for money, or whatever. My my ambitions sort of tend to be focused at this point in my life on impact. Uh, You're careful about the word choice here. Evolution, you know, and it's also like, what's your ambition? What what's your ambition in terms of what you want to contribute toward the collective versus what you want for yourself, like. Sometimes those are antagonistic. Like for myself, I want a lot more like um, contemplative time, time surfing, time with my family, you know, a quiet kind of private time. But that sometimes competes with the ambition to participate and engage and be contributive. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, so that's, that, that's kind of the balancing act. That's how I felt about Motherless Brooklyn. It's why I kept at it. 
fairly relentlessly for a long time because I felt like uh, I really loved the character. I really liked the empathy in the novel I, version of it. I loved the empathy he engendered in me, and I loved the idea of one of those characters who in their sh uniqueness and strangeness and in the affliction that they're suffering in, they, they, they make the audience um, remember that empathy is important, like that you want to be a person who's rooting for that kind of a person, right? That you're not on the side of the world that, that treats other people as invisible or a kind of a collateral or, or just, you know, underestimates other people. You want to lift up other people. You want to care about other people. And, and I think there's a real, there, apart from the noir of this film, I think there's, a, there's actually a tradition of films I really like from like My Left Foot to Forrest Gump to Rain Man to Goodwill Hunting that, that really in a lot of ways are about the audience identifying with an underdog mm. in their complex humanity and maybe their thorniness or whatever and watching them watching them ro navigate and rise through their own struggle and in a way seeing like, you know what, like I can get through mine too. But I also think as I got pushing on this one, I, I felt like, you know, after 2016 especially, I felt like there's stuff going on and, you know, there's, this, there's these moments in American life where there's this real disconnect between the the um, the narrative of American exceptionalism and American humanism and idealism, the disconnect between that and what's actually going on um, gets to a point where I think a lot of Americans start to go, who are we? Are we what we say we are? Are we, is the gulf getting too wide? And how much of this are we going to tolerate? Like, mm -hmm. you know, before we sort of hopefully in our very American way say, nah, -uh, that's, that's not the way that's not the way we do things here and we're we're going to start making noise you know and re and really caring and i and i think i think that um i think that noir films the good ones tend to rise up into those moments and sort of say become like emblems of like Chinatown which is a great you know it's basically like hey sunny california the land of the american dreams peel the corner back and it's built on huge crimes you know what i mean so let's not get let's not get like too baked on this like narrative of of orange groves and and beaches and all of it because that's what's going on here in what we call like california mm. it's very healthy to stick a fork in the illusions of our ideals and and challenge whether there are certain people who are messing with us in ways that we shouldn't get complacent about. I have two big questions before we leave. Yeah. Um, I'm still trying to figure out Chinatown. I still don't understand it entirely, and I, I love it all the same. But Let me ask you a question, though, because I think it's really interesting. Yes, you get lost, and nobody watches that movie and understands what's going on. Eight-tenths of the way through that movie, you have no idea what's really happening. And even on multiple viewing, the people who say it's a classic can't really narrate for you the mechanism of the plot. I have no idea. Which, not to be defensive, but it does always amaze me when when people use as a critical metric, it's convoluted. Right. I can't follow it. It's like, who cares? Is That's not why you go to the movies. You go to the movies to drift 
through in L.A. shot by John Alonzo and Roman Polanski and to watch Jack Nicholson say those lines and look at those cars and look at those clothes. And what you come away with is there's nobody who watches Chinatown that does not come away with an edge of a cynical sense of like, wow, like... Something is awry. Something is awry. And is that true? Did that happen in California? That's what that's about. And it works on everybody, right? And I think nobody questions, is Chinatown too long? That's not the metric. Like, that's not... I I do get it. I, I sometimes feel like people who have watched too many movies and are reviewing movies for other people, they, they just, they're reviewing their own incapacity mm-hmm. to, re, to engage anymore, but they're underestimating the audience in the process. Well, that's a, I mean? that's a much larger conversation yes, we don't have the time for. Um, but I do agree with you. Uh, two wholesome questions before okay. we leave. Uh, you just turned 50 a month and a half ago. If we were in Three Tall Women, you'd be character B. <laughs> uh, Great reference. Can I ask you, just two people who do not know one another, Right. are you proud of what you've done to this point? Definitely. I, f- I even more than that, I feel r- really lucky, like really blessed. I I came up in a cohort of like really talented people, some of whom also got really lucky and some of whom are incredibly talented people as talented as me and um haven't haven't had some as much of the the luck the breaks the ways that the the ocean moves your cork around and you land in this spot where you get an opportunity to do something and it starts to ripple and create you know it snowballs right so i i i feel kind of astonished at at like the good fortune I've had to get to work at the level I have, but yeah, I feel I feel proud of my contribution to the things I've done with other people, and um, I feel proud of Motherless Brooklyn. I, I it took perseverance, and I'm glad I didn't quit. I'm really glad I didn't quit. There was a couple times I really was like, oh. "This is exhausting me. It's enervating me. It's making you know, it's just like move on, move on." And I and I. I'm really happy I didn't. I'm really happy that I, that that puzzle piece in my life has is been put into place and pressed down and smoothed. It 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 definitely makes me gives me like a sense of satisfaction just to have done it. But there's other there's other things that aren't have anything to do with my public life. I'm proud of. I'm proud of like our company that we started, CrowdRise. That you know we raised a half a billion dollars for charitable organizations on it and. It was great. It was like one of the great adventures of my life, and I really like the what we did. You know, it's it, it was neat. It was not something I expected to become that. And but yeah, I think the short answer is yeah. In, in November of 1997, you said, "I used to envy people who were driven by the textures of their history. I believe that unique art was produced by intense needs to break out of some kind of confinement. I didn't think defining an iconic art." could come out of a sheltered life. Where do you stand on that now? Uh well, I mean that's that's what we that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, isn't it? Like like the Bruce Springsteen right. narrative of you know, constraints and I feel suffer- like you've been working against that your suffer- whole yeah. career. Yeah, yeah, well, if not against it, certainly not you know, pretend pre- <laughs> pretend, pretending you come from a more strapped um circumstance than you do is is 
is uh, disingenuous, to say the least. I mean, actually, it's really funny. You know the scene in the movie where you meet the trumpet player, Michael K. Williams, mm -hmm. and the white the white bohemian kid comes up to him and says, I'm a trumpet player too, and he, how did you develop your thing? And he says, like, sucking off white boys like you, get out of my face. That's a story that Quincy Jones told me about Miles. He said he was having a drink with Miles Davis between sets and that that actually, that that actually happened. Um, and I was like, I have to put that in. Anyway, I showed the movie to Quincy the other night, and um, I, we got talking about, he was like, I can't, he said that. It's like, I can't believe it's in there. It's, it's so great, blah, blah. I said, was he, you know, was he always that mean? And he said, well, you know, Miles was actually very middle class. And he really, he, he really didn't want people to know that he'd come from as middle class a background as he has. And so he always acted ghetto and gangster. And um, I, I thought that was so funny. The idea that Miles Davis would need in any way to feel that, you know, would, would feel that... Some posturing. Yeah, that, that, that he needed, that he needed um, you know, privation to be more a part of his narrative place, like with the great like protean artists of all time right like to me like the upside of coming from stability or let's call it like something that's not really tightly de culturally defined right my family is a total ethnic melange right deep american roots we don't have an immigrant experience if you come from sort of like a broad-based background that doesn't have like limiting definitions around it like you can say like oh so it's it's devoid of some of the characteristics like francis coppola obviously is like extremely tied to his family's immigrant experience mm -hmm. and he like shaped his work and his life around aspects of it right especially early on but on the flip you know to me the you know there's there's always been that idea within like mythological things that characters like the greek gods that are iconic right and then there's sort of more that idea of the trickster, like the the shapeshifter, right? Literally in mythology, they'll talk about like the trickster or the mm. shapeshifter, and um, the boys. Yeah, and I exactly, and I think that in many ways, I think it's easier to be a shapeshifter if you've been more of a tabula rasa, a generalist, um, a traveler. I went to thirteen bar mitzvahs. You know what I mean? Like I had lots of Jewish friends, lots of black friends, and I was always really drawn to their they're the world's the exoticism of their stuff and if you get drawn toward exoticism then like as an actor that's exactly you know then it's like hey i'm gonna go put this skin on i'm gonna go put that skin on and i think in some level you 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 become more of a trickster you know you become like a for sure that's more my bent you know i'm not Harrison Ford like I'm not I'm not I'm not going to be like the guy you go to for the same thing mm -hmm. every time and you love it every time you know what I mean I'm, I'm just not well I, I have personally loved it most of the time <laughs> uh, I want to just we'll say. discuss off air what wasn't Great. loved uh, just well, kidding no we'll get into that yeah <laughs> um, I want to thank you for for shape shifting for as long as you have because uh, you have in many ways inspired me to make my own movies so uh, I can't wait to see them I appreciate that Edward Norton thank you so much pleasure
that's our show. Special thanks this week to Melanie Klein and the good people at Warner Bros. Without them, this episode would not have been possible. If you'd like to see Motherless Brooklyn, Norton's second directorial effort, it's out in theaters across the country uh, this coming Friday, November 1st. If you'd like to learn more about Ed, you can do so in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There you'll find episodes with fellow actors like Willem Dafoe, Viggo Mortensen, and Vincent D'Onofrio, and directors like Kenneth Branagh, Werner Herzog, and Peter Bogdanovich. This show is available to stream on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to drop us a line, you can do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Design is by Ian Chang. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Kresha Shenoy. Music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Social media by Nikki Spina. Our editor is Neil Inez. Our engineer is Tim Moore, and we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you back here next Sunday. Until then, have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.